Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Lord, I thank you that as we hear your word this morning, that we would be challenged, Lord, that we would be convicted, and, and Lord, that, that we would just be ready to receive what you have for us, that we would leave here today differently than we, can, than we came in, that we would grow in our faith and our knowledge and revelation of you, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I've entitled today's message, There is a Cost. How many know that there's actually a cost to serve Jesus? Being a disciple actually requires a little bit of discipline, everybody's favorite four-letter word, and sacrifice. And the truth is, is salvation is about meeting Jesus at the cross and trusting him. Being a disciple, and that's the difference between salvation and being a disciple. Salvation is about meeting Jesus at the cross and putting your trust in him. But being a disciple is about bearing your own cross and following him. And this message today, I hope, is going to challenge you a little bit. Get under your skin a little bit. And uh, my prayer, though, is that it's, it's going to convict you to, to, to begin to uh, understand that there is a cost and actually be willing to pay that cost to serve Jesus. But on the other hand, I also hope uh, that you understand that it's not to condemn anybody. Whether you're in the room today, you're listening online today, or, or a few years in the future, this isn't to condemn you, this is to encourage you and to convict you. And there is a difference, because condemnation says you're a failure, and there's nothing that you can do, that there's no way out. But conviction says that you can overcome. You may see some areas that need improvement, or some areas we need to walk forward in, but there's always a way out, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Condemnation points out our failures, but conviction points out our opportunities. And condemnation always holds you back. It always pushes you down. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to condemn you. Say you're never good enough. You're never going to be better. You can never do these things, and it holds you down. But conviction challenges us to move forward and not stay where we're at. Amen? And I, I don't know if you guys have ever gone through this, but I can tell you this. There have been times where I've been worn out and tired and burned out serving Jesus, coming up here every Sunday to, 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 to minister to, to the stuff that we do during the week, sometimes it wears you out. And the truth is that when I signed up for all this, I thought the most difficult part was going to be preaching. Turns out that's the easiest part. There's a lot more to being a pastor that they don't tell you about on the brochure. So, uh, uh, the, but the truth is I've been tired. I've been worn out. I, there's been times I've gone into auto, autopilot, and I have to be careful of that. And there's been times that I've been tempted to complain. Anybody ever been tempted to complain? Ever, 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 ever thinking, man, this just isn't fair. This is just too hard. There's just, and then God reminds me, you know what? There is a cost to serve. There is a price to be paid, and that's what I want to talk about today. Because I think that if we come into Christianity thinking it's just uh, all, all gumdrops and lollipops, one, we're going to be disappointed. If we try to share Christianity as this thing where, yeah, just become a Christian and your life's going to get better. You'll never have any problems. It's going to be great from here on out. And I think sometimes that we can do that. That's actually not a good way to share the gospel. We need to let them know that, that there is an expectation and that sometimes their life might get harder. The truth is, is if you get born again, your life in many areas will probably be harder than it was, would have if you wouldn't have been saved. Now don't get me wrong. There are some areas that will be way better <laughs> once you get saved. And the truth is, no matter what the cost is, I believe that it's worth it. But the reality is, is that there is a price to be paid to be a Christian. 
In Luke 14, 26 through 27, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple? If we look at this passage here, the reality is, is to, to be a disciple means to put Jesus first. It means that Jesus comes before your work. It means Jesus comes first before your family. A lot of people don't like to hear that. It means to put your Jesus first before your spouse. And certainly to put Jesus first before yourself. And this is an interesting passage here because this this, this comes across as, as pretty harsh and pretty, pretty hard to hear. He says, you know what? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and, and children and brothers and sisters, and, and you're like, man, we're supposed to hate everybody else and just love Jesus? But the reality is, is the, the word here, you can probably read it and understand a little bit better, is, is to read it instead of does not hate his own mother. What it really is looking at is thought of as you need to love them less than Jesus. All that Jesus needs to be the preeminent love of your life. It's kind of a comparison thing. You know, I love my wife, but my love for her fails in comparison to my love for Jesus. And the good news is, is that she's a strong believer too, and she's not offended by that statement. Some people can get offended by that, that you're supposed to love Jesus more than everything else. But that's what Jesus said. This is a comparison thing. Look, if you want to be my disciple, you need to love all these things less than you love me. And some people don't like that statement, and they can get mad, or they can get offended. Just remember, I didn't write it. This is what Jesus said. Jesus wrote these things. In Matthew 10.37, it says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see, this idea here of love, too, the reason why he uses the word hate when I said it's a comparison thing, the truth is, is, is your love for Jesus would be so great that if somebody were to compare it to your love for your wife, your children, your spouse, it would be almost as if you hated them in comparison to your love. It's not just love Jesus a little bit more. The truth is, is we're supposed to love him a lot more. And he says, look, if you love your father or mother more than me, that means you're not worthy of me. And that's a scary place to be. I don't ever want to be found in a position that I'm not worthy of Jesus. But the truth is, is that even though we look at this, you have to understand who Jesus is talking to. And uh, this would have been a very offensive statement to the Jews that he was speaking to at the time. This is a society where honoring your parents was one of the utmost things that you could do and family required a wholesale devotion. If you think about how they lived back then, families stayed in the same house and lived together for generations. They supported one another. So imagine the statement coming from Jesus saying, listen, all these people that you love, that you're devoted to, you need to love me more. And teachers in those days, any teacher that was there, they would demand great respect. They would demand uh, great affection. But in Jewish tradition, only God would openly demand such wholesale devotion is what Jesus is asking for right here. One of those things is that Jesus never calls himself God in the Bible. What do you think he's saying right here? Nobody else but God would ask that kind of devotion. 
The only other person that had was God. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then Jesus says, our uh, pointer, which I like to use, I think is broken. I blame it on Joseph, Pastor Joseph. (laughs) Hallelujah. Huh? I got one on each end? (laughs) verse 27 says whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple what does it mean to bear your own cross the truth is bearing your own cross is sacrifice being a disciple demands sacrifice you look at what jesus did when he carried his cross he did that and sacrificed his entire being for us his his life So the question is, if we're to bear our own cross, what are we willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice that extra hour of sleep so you can come in and be a part of the prayer meeting in the mornings at 9 o'clock? Are those last couple hours of TV to have some time to spend in the Word and prayer? A Saturday morning for a men's meeting or a women's meeting? That new car that you just have to have but you don't really need? So that makes your budget so tight that you can't even give without defaulting on your debts. The truth is, is that we're, we're called to sacrifice like he sacrificed, and he sacrificed his life. And putting Jesus first isn't easy. I'll be the first one to tell you it's not easy. But it's so worth it. So very worth it. Not even just the reality that one day we'll get to spend eternity in heaven with him, which truthfully alone is enough. But to see the fruit in your own life and the fruit in the lives of others as they put him first, to see lives changed, to see relationships restored, to see people healed because they put him first. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is that Jesus was willing to give everything. How many know that Jesus didn't hold anything back? If he was willing to give so much, what are we willing to sacrifice? Amen? And in Luke chapter 4, verse 28 through 30, it says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. The scripture, as you might have guessed, inspired the title of the message. There is a cost. And the truth is, is that the people listening to this parable would have understood it very well because in 27 AD, just a few years before Jesus started his public minister, ministry, there was a poorly built amphitheater that had collapsed in the area with an estimated of 50,000 people dead when the amphitheater collapsed. The failing of inadequate or half-built structures was well known in the time. And the, the truth is, is that even worse than the building fail, fall, falling in this culture, the, the most crucial point was the builder's shame in that society because he had done a poor job. A society obsessed with honor and this building, builder built a building that didn't hold up and it actually fell and killed thousands upon thousands of people. For me, when I read this, I think about it, this describes Christians that just play one on Sunday morning. And the rest of the week, they look like everybody else. 
The rest of the week, you'd never even be able to tell they're a Christian unless they said so. Like the old saying goes, if tomorrow it was illegal to be, they made it illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough, enough evidence to convict you? And I hope for you, the answer is yes. Or maybe it's those Christians that, like Joseph, uh, Pastor Joseph was mentioning this morning, blowing the trumpet as they give. You know, they put a big show when they're out in front of the limelight. When they're, when they're on stage or they're in front of people, people can see they put on a big show. But behind closed doors, they're a completely different person. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about Christians that are growing and struggling. How do you know that, that sometimes you stumble? Sometimes you fall. You get back up. But I'm talking of those Christians that that claim to be one, but they're really not. And it's not a, a stumbling situation. It's a way they live their life. I never want to live my life in such a way that I would just be pretending to be a Christian. But the reality is, is that there is a cost to serving Jesus. And that's why I think it's such a bad idea when we tell people to try to get them to convert to Christianity that everything's going to be fantastic because there is a cost and we're just setting them up for failure. And that's what Jesus said. Look, who of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down and count the cost? Who of you wanting to be a Christian did not sit down and count the cost? There would be a requirement. And the truth is, is if you're looking for a religion that's going to make you feel good at every turn and it's not going to require anything from you in return... You've picked the wrong religion. You've picked the wrong church. For those of you who have been here for a while, you know that because I'm, I'm not afraid about asking people to help and I try to get people plugged in as often as possible. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, we just need the help. But two, it's because that's what we're all called to do is to serve in His kingdom. It's just as much about being good for you as it is for being good for me or for the church. And the reality is, is that there is a cost. And that has offended many people. There are so many people that get caught up in this idea that church is just about coming and getting your ears tickled or somehow the church is here to serve you. No, the church is here to equip you so that you can serve. The whole purpose is to get you ready so that you can serve and be a part of what's going on. And we have to count that cost. There's a story about a lady named Faith Flippinger. She was a retired school teacher from Florida who went to Iraq to serve as a human shield, and this was before the war. And he's now facing thousands of dollars in fines from the United States government. Flippinger returned home in Maine as being fined at least $10,000, and she has refused to pay and could face up to 12 years in prison. The Department of the Treasury sent uh, Fippinger a letter in March informing her that she broke the law by crossing the Iraqi border before the war. Traveling into Iraq violated U.S. sanctions prohibiting American citizens from engaging in virtually all direct or indirect commercial, financial, or trade transactions with Iraq. And Flippinger was part of an international group from 30 countries that spread out in Iraq in hopes of preventing an attack on the country. And the letter asked her to detail her travels to Iraq and document any financial transactions in her response. And Flippinger contended that only money she spent was on food and emergency supplies. But if she doesn't pay her fine, it could increase. The money might be taken from her retirement checks, her Social Security check. Our lien should be placed on her assets. And Taylor Griffin, a Treasury Department spokesman, says she was in Iraq in violation of U.S. sanctions. And that's what happens. Now, the reality is, whether you agree with faith or not and what she did, it's clear, I think, that she didn't fully count the costs 
of her actions. She had a mission. She had something she wanted to stand up for, and she has a price to pay. And my hope is that all of us realize this as Christians, that there really is a price to pay. And when we get born again, there is an expectation. And I hope that we've accounted for that cost when we've decided to follow Jesus. And some of that just depends on how you live your life. We just, in Bible study, we've just been going over uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 5. And this is what it says in verses 1 through 8. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and for those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation one of the things as we were discussing it that really stood out to me was the fact that those of the day christians look different than those of the night there is an expectation that we would not look like the rest of the world that we would not live like the rest of the world We're to be sober and ready in contrast with those who are asleep or indifferent and drunk in the night. We're supposed to look different. That means that we give up some of those things that people of this world think are so fantastic to be able to go out and get drunk and sleep around and do drugs and get involved in all those other things. The world says those things are great. But the truth is we should look different. And there's a sacrifice we play to, to, to put off all of those things. At least it may seem like a sacrifice at the time when you're young and you're just stepping out into that life. The truth is when you've been doing it a while, I look back at those, those days in my life and go, man, thank God I'm not involved in that anymore. I don't even like going to downtown Tucson at night because it reminds me of a time in my life I would assume not remember. It actually almost makes me anxious when I go down there at night. But we're supposed to look different. There is a cost to living a Christian life. And we enjoy immeasurable benefits. Salvation, freedom, hope, and peace. But the truth is, those things come with an expectation on your life. Amen? A very similar parable as Jesus continues in verses 31 through 33 of, chapter, of Luke chapter 14. It says, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The king has to ask himself, do I have what is necessary to win this war? He has to count the cost before he goes in. And it says if he doesn't, ultimately he needs to make peace with the opposing force. Satan is referred to as the God of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Speaking of Satan, the God of this war, of this world. And this term of peace that you would have to be required to keep with the God of this world is not one you want to make. 
So you need to make sure you've counted the cost, that you're ready to go up into battle. Another take on this parable, many theologians say, is that this actually isn't referring to believers, but this king is actually referring to Jesus. He's the one who has to count the cost. He is the one who has to be prepared for war. And that's why he says, if you're not willing to denounce everything, you can't be my disciple. He is building a tower that is not going to fail. He's building an army that is going to rout the enemy king. And he's asking you, will you be a strong member of that tower, a strong piece of that tower? Will you be a strong member of his army? Are you ready to be a disciple? Because the truth is, is that things aren't all rosy, truthfully, in the kingdom of heaven. Some things are hard. Matthew eleven twelve says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. What an interesting scripture. This isn't the ones you see sewn on pillows. Designed to encourage you before you rest your head. It says the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. How many know that means that you and I need to be violent sometimes? Christianity is not about being timid or about being fearful. We're to be bold. We're to be strong. 2 Timothy 1.7, this is the New American Standard Translation, says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Other versions say a spirit of fear. We're not supposed to be fearful. We're not supposed to be uh, timid. He says, but instead he's given us a spirit of power and of love and discipline. Now I want to be clear. What it's talking about here is not about us being violent towards others. Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil even in the heavenly places. So we're not being violent towards others. I mean, we're supposed to go crack people over the head with a rock or a Bible, either one. But we're supposed to stand strong and forcefully declare God's will for our lives. That means sometimes taking a stand against an enemy that's trying to tell you something else and being bold and repeating the word of God to him. We forcefully stand against the schemes of the enemy and we proclaim boldly the gospel. And sometimes our struggle is not even that deep. Sometimes that struggle is against ourselves. And we have to fight those things that sneak in against our own fear and doubt. And the truth is, is that most problems in our lives aren't actually caused by the devil. They're caused by ourselves. Because speaking for myself, I'm sure you guys don't have these problems, but I can do some dumb stuff from time to time and make my life a little bit harder than it needs to be. Or when we begin to condemn ourselves, when our heart begins to, to, to try to tell us something that isn't in line with the Word of God, this is what 1 John three nineteen through 20 says. It says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and we shall reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows everything. That's when you have your, that, that guilt kicking in. And, and that's when you start actually condemning yourself, not conviction, but can, not condemnation. You begin to tell yourself, I'm not good enough. God can never love me. How can God forgive me for this? Look at me. How could God ever use me? You need to reassure your heart before him. And the great news is, is that God's ability to use you has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. God's ability to save you has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. And he is big enough to use you. He is big enough to save you. And truthfully, the areas where you're weakest is where God can use you the strongest because then nobody has a doubt that it's God moving and not you. 
to help clarify this passage a little bit, let me read it to you from the Amplified Version. The Amplified Version of the Bible is just like the regular version. It's just louder. Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. In the days of John the Baptist until the present time, the kingdom of heaven has endured violent assault, and violent men seize it by force. And here's the Amplified part. As a precious prize, a share in the heavenly kingdom is sought with the most ardent zeal and intense exertion. The kingdom of heaven and the promises of God are actually great prizes. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that. And that these prizes, they're worth standing for. They're worth fighting for. They're worth being aggressive with the enemy. They're worth getting up and starting to take a stand to stop being passive in your life, saying, God knows where I am. He can bless me if He wants to. If God wants me to do this, He'll give me some sign. He'll just make it happen. Sometimes you need to stand up and be aggressive. Take hold of the promises of God. Declare them in your life. Stand against those things that are coming against you. Christianity isn't about being passive. It's about being aggressive. The violent take it by force. Amen? In 2 Corinthians 10 through 5, it says, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Here's more of that strong language again. We're at war. Christianity is not about being passive, it's not about being timid. The truth is, we are at war. And there are powers that want you dead. If you don't think the devil wants you dead, you are absolutely mistaken. See, the truth is the devil can't win, and he knows that. His goal is just to bring as many people down with him as he can. And that's you if you'll let him. He wants nothing more than to pull you away, to make you be fearful, to make you be afraid. The enemy wants you dead. The good news is, though, is we're not warring according to the flesh. We're not fighting people, like I said earlier. We're not, we're not trying to be violent and aggressive towards others. There are many religions, and truthfully in Christianity, there's been dark times in its past where they tried to use that as the answer. And it's not effective. And it's not what we've been called to do. And there's certainly right now, today, religions that uh, convert by force. But we're not fighting people, and the truth is, the lost are not our enemy no matter how bad they are, no matter how aggressive they are, no matter how many awful things that they do. In the United States, we don't see a lot of that. You know, the worst part is we get called names and get our feelings hurt. But there are other countries where, where the lost are doing horrific things. It's been for very, uh, very, very many years now, I think probably decades, that Christians have been the most persecuted people group in the world. Now, you would never know that in the, uh, in the United States because apparently oh, Christian white men are, are racist and homophobes and, and awful and the worst. We're the worst ever. And there's nothing you can do if you're born white, then you're just awful. But the truth is, is that Christians are being persecuted around the world right now. More so than any other people group. So we don't, we don't get to see the, the, the awfulness that, that, are, that they're saying. But the truth is, even with all that awfulness, all that terrible stuff, we're not waging war against those people. Because the reality is, it's just like us before we were saved, they're deceived. 
The lost are not our enemy, and telling them that they're going to hell does nothing but make it for harder for God to touch them later on. Because it makes it harder for them to see God in our ungodly and foolish decisions and the way that we act. They push him away because they see behavior in us that isn't godly, but they attribute it to God. And the reality is, is that when we see all the loss, God doesn't hate homosexuals. God doesn't hate people that perform or have had abortions. God doesn't hate strippers. He doesn't hate prostitutes. And he doesn't even hate murderers. God hates sin. That's what God hates. And the reality is, is that anybody that's murdered somebody is, that goes to hell isn't going to hell because they murdered somebody. Anybody that's had an abortion or performed an abortion and, and they go to hell, it's not because they did those things. The reality is, is that the only way to go to hell is, is not receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you've lived what would be considered in society a perfect life and never committed any of those atrocious things and you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're on the same boat as them. Eternal life is the result of accepting the free gift of God. It's not the result of living a life free from failure. And I thank God for that. So if we're not fighting these people, then how do we go to war then? Well, the first thing we need to do is tell people about Christ. The more people we get saved, the more this world is going to change. We need to tell them that he gave all so that they could live we also need to combat incorrect views of God and Christians. And we do that not by telling people. You can tell people all you want. We do that by showing people in how we live our lives. We should look different. We should live our lives in such a way that people are asking us what's different so that we can have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. And then finally, we pray. Church, we need to pray for this country, for this city for the people who are lost. And the reality is, is that just telling people that Christ loves them isn't enough. We need to show them in how we live our lives. We need to show them that Christ loves them through us. The gospel is divinely powerful. And a new life is the only thing that can destroy those fortresses that have enslaved people right now. The only way out is a brand new life. So if we want to change the world, then we don't do it by making holier laws. We do it by getting people saved. One of the, 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 the saddest things Christians can do is to get so wrapped up in politics that politics become their God. And they think that if we just get the right people in office, if we get the right laws passed, then, then America is going to be fantastic. But the truth is, is that, that none of those things are going to get people into the kingdom of heaven. How many know that, that we could have a law that says you have to be, to be a Christian? And that won't get people into heaven. The truth is, is if you want to see more Christian laws, if you want to see more Christian ideas in government, you do that by getting people saved. How many know that if the entirety of Congress and the entirety of our local governments and our state governments, how many know if the entirety of them were all Christians, you know what would happen? The laws that get passed would be more Christian. Well, how do we get all Christians in office? But we get the people around us saved because people that are saved are, gonna, are, are going to elect people with like mindsets. But it all starts with getting people saved, and that's how we war. That's how we battle as we pray, we, we, we share the gospel, we get people saved, and that's how we see a world that has changed. Because the power of God in people's lives changes them. 
And finally, in our own lives, as part of warring, we have to take every thought captive. So he says here in verse 5, we destroy arguments, every lofty opinion. That's where we challenge the, the false opinions of God. And it says, and then we have to take every thought captive to obey, obey Christ. You can get all kinds of things running in your mind that are contrary to the word of God. And you need to catch them and throw them out as soon as possible. You know, it's not a sin to have that stuff pop into your head where you start running into problems if you let it stay there. Instead, replace it with something else. Don't let rogue thoughts manifest into actions in your life. The point of all these verses that we've just looked at recently was, I want, to see, I want you to see that Christianity is not a passive religion. We need to be violent spiritually. We need to realize that we're at war. And as church, each and every one of us are to be bold and strong. Amen? 2 Timothy 2, 1-4 says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. Have that military language again. We're at war. And that means we need to be good soldiers of Christ. How do we do that? We draw our strength by grace in Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we have to understand is who we are. If you want to be an effective soldier, you need to understand who we are. Draw your strength from, from, from the grace that has been given you. And the truth is, grace is, is, can, can be described as everything that was accomplished in Jesus Christ. We're forgiven, we're free, we're redeemed, we're loved, we're worthy. All those things are accomplished through grace and they should give you strength, make you more confident in who you are in the Lord. Do you know that people who are down on themselves or who have low self-esteem are very easy to push over and manipulate? But people who are confident and strong, if you're confident and strong in who you are in Christ, you're not going to be able to be bowled over. You're not going to be able to be pushed over. And our confidence and strength comes from what Jesus has accomplished in us. Let's just be strengthened by the grace, that, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You know, one of the things that uh, is real important to the military, you may have noticed this, is training. How many know that we need to be trained as well? That's what church is about. Church is about being equipped. Like I said earlier, the truth is, is that church isn't here to serve you. You're here to get equipped so that you can serve in the kingdom. We need to be trained. When I joined the army right out of high school, they didn't send me directly to my job at war. I talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago, but they trained me. I had to go to, to two months of basic training. I had four months of AIT, which is advanced individual training, which is where I learned my specific job. But, uh, and, and I had one of the, the, not the shortest, but definitely not the longest, Michael, uh, who just left to go to, to be in the Navy. He's had uh, uh, his basic training and advanced individual training, and then he's got another training for, what, another year or two? Like, he's got a couple years worth of training because he's going to be a, a nuclear technician on a submarine. Turns out you need to know a little bit about stuff before you start messing around with radioactive things. <laughs> but he's got many years of training in the Army because it's important that they know how to do this stuff. And Christians need to go through similar training. 
We need to learn how to be Christians before we begin moving into ministry. That's why church is so important where you can come and be equipped. That's why the Bible studies we do are so important where you can come and be equipped. That's why it's so important to be involved so that you can be equipped. We need to learn. That's why in 1 Timothy 3.6, when it's speaking about the overseers or the leaders in the church, it says you must not be a recent convert. You have to have gone through some training. Because if you're not, you may become puffed up with conceit and fall in in the condemnation of the devil. You have to have been doing it a while. You have to be trained. You know, it's one of the things that, uh, for me, when I'm looking for people to get involved in the church, particularly uh, higher levels of, of ministry or leadership in the church, one of the most important things to me, it's not your talent or your skill in a particular area, it's your faithfulness. That you're there every Sunday, every Wednesday, that you're there, you're a part of what's going on. Because I, I value faithfulness much more than anything else. The truth is, I can, I can rent talent. I can hire talent. But faithful people, people that are there day in and day out, that are going to be there through the thick and the thin, those who aren't recent converts, those are the ones that, that make an impact. They're so important. And then the other thing, as soldiers, we need to be reproducing. You need to be training others. You should be involved in other people's lives. This says here in verse 2, <coughs> pardon me, which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men. We need to be reproducing in our own lives as well and in the church. So that way that, that when whatever we're taught, we can teach others and then they can be trained and then they can teach others and they can go out in the world and step into their ministry. And then finally he says, the first thing when he starts referring to being a, a soldier is that we have to endure suffering. Boy, that doesn't sound like the brochure of some people. Oh, be a Christian. Everything will be perfect and wonderful. You'll never have a hard day in your life. You're going to prosper. All your, all, you're going to have everything you ever need. And, and, and that stuff is true to an extent. God will take care of you. You may not be rich. God says that, that, that with faith, all things are possible. But he also says with faith and patience. It doesn't happen right away. Sometimes we go through hard stuff because we have to be strengthened. God doesn't, I never believe for a second that God causes hard and painful things in your life. He's not the one that sends those things. But you better believe he'll use them to make you stronger. He says the first thing Paul mentions when he refers to soldiers is that we have to endure suffering. There will be suffering as a Christian. The truth is, is that we're all going to face it. It'll be tough, but I can assure you that it's worth it. Sometimes there's going to be training, and God will always get you through to the other side. He's not going to leave you or forsake you, but you will go through some things. But it's just like the trees that are battered on the cliff's edge if you don't know this, but trees that grow up on the edge of a cliff, the wood that comes from those trees is the densest and strongest wood that you can get from elsewhere because they're constantly being battered by the wind and because of that they respond by becoming stronger. It's one of the reasons why when we have these bad storms, you see trees knocked over all around because we're taking desert trees that don't, aren't used to getting a lot of water. We put an irrigation system in. We give them all kinds of water. They grow super fast without any opposition, and then when a strong wind comes the first time, they realize that they're not strong and they're, 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 they're way too much for what's going on and, and branches breaks and trees tip over. That's why we see that. 
because they actually haven't ever had to face that kind of, of abuse before. But the truth is, is that when we go through stuff, we get stronger. How many know that if you want your faith muscle to get bigger, it's got to be worked out every now and then? But when it happens, you're stronger for it. You know, the training that I went through in the military, there was some tough stuff. It was hard. But it was worth it. And I came out the other side a stronger man. Better equipped to fulfill the duties in, in the army, but also better equipped to fulfill, du fulfill duties in my own life. The truth of the matter is. And then finally, as a soldier, we can't get entangled in civilian pursuits. When you're in the army, your one job is the army. Matter of fact, it's the only... It's the only occupation that you can take up in the world where you can be imprisoned if you don't come back to work. You're no longer your own. You are officially government property at that point. And uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, if you're not familiar with or a military family or know about it, yeah, they call it going AWOL, absent without leave. If you don't show up to work, you can and will be arrested because the government is your number one job. You can't just do what you want to do anymore. You've signed your, your, line, your, your name on the dotted line and said, I'm willing to put the government first. But the truth is, as Christians, we need to do the same thing. We're serving in the army of, of God, and we need to put Him first. He says, don't get entangled in civilian pursuits because His aim is to please the one who enlisted Him. Now, does that mean that you can't have any of your own personal uh, things that you like to do, hobbies or whatever? No, it doesn't mean that. Just don't let any of that stuff take priority in your life over God. I mean, certainly, if we're not even supposed to put our husbands, our wives, our children, our moms, our dads in front of God, certainly the football game shouldn't go in front of God. Certainly the TV show shouldn't go in front of God. Whatever those things that we decide we want to put in front of God, none of those things should be there. None, none of those things are necessarily bad. The truth is, is that you can get so wrapped up in church stuff, you put church stuff in front of God. We just need to make sure that he's the priority, amen? Because our aim is to please him and everything that we do should be to please him. And we'll finish off in Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Like I said when I started this message, I, I, I hope... The Holy Spirit is ministering to you right now, even pointing out those areas in your life that you've let get too far ahead. I pray the same thing for myself. But like I said, I don't want you to be condemned. And I want to leave you today actually encouraged. Being a disciple does carry a cost, but even so, God is always with you every step of the way. And as a disciple, we need to be strong and courageous because it's not always easy. But this strength comes from the Lord because He is inside us and because He is behind us, backing us up every step of the way. So church, I want to encourage you. And I would say for each and every one of us, let's resolve to be a good soldier of Christ, serving in the army of God, putting His will first, desiring to, to, to please Him, putting His kingdom first. Let's resolve to be good soldiers and the army of Christ. And let's live lives with the intent 
of pleasing our commander-in-chief. Amen. Pleasing him. Hallelujah. Well, let's go ahead and bow our head.